0: to Orwellian, the podcast dedicated to the essays of George Orwell. When you hear the word Orwellian, what do you think of? Terrifying dystopias? State surveillance? The loss of personal freedom? Well, we think of tea, pubs, and the common toad. Join us, and we'll tell you why. Welcome back, everyone. My name is Lewis, and I am here with my co-host, Simon. Very chipper today, Simon.
1: That was my most enthusiastic Simon, yeah.
0: That was kind of like Saturday morning kids' TV level chipperness, I think.
1: It's a London Pride chipperness, to be honest with you.
0: Yes, today we are drinking London Pride, my dear old dad's favourite beer. It's really nice, send us a crate of it.
1: We are open to sponsorship.
0: Indeed, we are. Only for, you know,
1: alcohol. Alcohol, basically.
0: So, today we are going to talk about Orwell's essay, Common Lodging Houses. But first of all, Simon, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing very well, Lewis. How about yourself?
0: I'm all right. Um, I think maybe I mentioned last week, uh, it's spring, I'm getting back to work, the year's starting, I've had a haircut. You have? I have. Um, What do you
1: think of it? Uh, It suits you well. Short back and sides?
0: Yes, short back and sides these days. I like to keep my hair pretty short. When I was younger, I used to like it a bit longer, look a bit kind of, have a bit of a mop top. But since I got a bit more wrinkly, I've uh, favoured short hair. Have you changed your hairstyle much? I, I mean, in all the time I've known you, you've had the same hairstyle.
1: Well, I've got to the stage where my hairstyles are based around maintaining the last resemblance of hair follicle that I have left. And my conversation with the barber involves cover this bit, this bit, this bit, and this bit, and do what you want. So that's why the hairstyle hasn't changed much.
0: Still saving up for that trip to
1: Turkey. Uh, hopefully this podcast <laughs> can pay for the once trip to Turkey. Once yeah. we've
0: started advertising.
1: Yeah. my God this is without a camera. <laughs> when that operation goes I have out. to
0: say, I'm going to have to put my sunglasses on because the glint off your paint it's just, it's blinding me. Just
1: <laughs> <believe>. <laughs> At least I'm not selling milky bars.
0: <laughs> All right, so today we're talking about Orwell's essay, Common Lodging Houses, which was published in the New Statesman and Nation. I believe this was before the New Statesman Dropped the nation part. 3rd of September, 1932. Interestingly published... An early one. Yes, very early. The earliest we've discussed so far. And interestingly published under his real name of Eric Blair. Did you yeah. notice that?
1: On that topic, when he published his first book, which is directly related to this essay down there in Paris and London, him and his publisher, Victor Golanch, were going over possible pseudonyms. And do you know what some of the options were?
0: No, I've not heard the other ones.
1: Orwell wanted his pseudonym to be X. Just X. Just X. And then his other pseudonym was the name he went by in Down and Out in Paris and London. P.S. Burton, which was his pseudonym he used on the tramping expeditions, such as when he did the research for this essay. And Kenneth Miles and H. Lewis Always. He finally settled upon George Orwell, because the king at the time was King George. And Orwell was the river that ran through his hometown. If
0: you had to choose a pseudonym, Simon, what would you choose?
1: I haven't thought about it, but I I like the, the game people play where your porn star name is the name of your first pet and your mother's maiden name. So my porn star name is Susie Roulier. That's, quite, That's good. quite good. That's isn't quite good, isn't
0: it? I would, I would reveal mine, but I'm afraid that that might also allow people to access my bank details. So I might... Not. Oh, okay. <laughs>
1: your porn star name is your security password. <laughs> so um, I would probably take my mother's re- maiden name for my pseudonym. because It's quite nice. Roulier. Yeah. But Huguenot name. I think if I was going to choose a pseudonym...
0: Actually, I... I I have been published under a pseudonym before. Mm. Um, you know, I'm really into horror. Uh, and I once published, I'm, I'm giving away all my
1: secrets. Looking here. at your haircut, I can tell. <laughs> you.
0: I once published a horror story under the name of. So, the county I grew up in. The
1: name was so the county no, I grew up in? No. That doesn't, not very catchy.
0: The county I grew up in in Scotland is West Lothian, so my surname was Lothian, and I used the Scottish version of the name Andrew, which which is Andro, so I I published under the name of Andro Lothian.
1: I loathe it. But it says not that. Andrew Lothian. That's not that. What's that longest town name in Wales? Oh. Can you say it?
0: No. I I can say the last five syllables.
1: Do you think anybody from there has ever considered using it in their pseudonym?
0: If they were being paid by the, by the page, maybe it would be a good idea.
1: Who's yeah. the page? Okay, so let's, let's jump into the essay. Okay. Common Lodging Houses. So we've, we've mentioned when it was published. Now, as so many of these essays, what it is, is a clear precursor to one of these major works. In this case, it's his first major work, which is Down and Out in Paris and London, which happens to be one of my favourite all-time books. You haven't read it yet, have you, Lewis, although you're very aware of it, having seen the No, diaries.
0: it's on my shelf, and I have read the diaries he kept when he was picking hops in Kent, which I think was part <laughs> of his experience. Yeah,
1: he was. What I like about this is, for example, when an academic is writing up a thesis or a major work, often publish some research papers as they go along, as they're doing the research. And that's what Orwell's doing here. He's building towards a major work, but he's publishing essays as he's doing the research, collecting the empirical data. Now, he'd already published an essay called Spike, which is his first ever published work. And what Spike is, is a detailed reminiscence of him staying in one of these common lodging houses. Whereas this essay is his opinion on them and a plea for them to be improved.
0: Yes, it's very much reportage, isn't it? He's wanting to, in this essay, he's wanting to raise awareness of conditions in the common lodging houses amongst the middle class champagne socialists who read The New Statesman.
1: Absolutely. So what is a common lodging house?
0: As I understand it, we don't really have a modern equivalent. The common lodging houses were a kind of combination of what we would recognise as youth hostel, homeless hostel and a kind of barracks for casual labourers. We have to remember when this essay was written it was the height of the Great Depression There were high levels of unemployment, but only in specific regions of Britain, uh, in particular the coal fields. So, a lot of men, and it was mainly men uh, because women had a different uh, position in society at that time, large numbers of men were moving around the country in search of work and they needed places to stay. So, as well as providing Places for the homeless and cheap accommodation for travellers. Common lodging houses really provided accommodation for these transient labourers, didn't they?
1: And they they were very prevalent in Victorian times and then later in Edwardian times. And now in the interwar period. And then post-World War II, they slowly die out. And by the mid-50s, they don't exist any longer. They were colloquially known as Doss Houses at, at the time. So, basically, they were an extremely cheap hotel for those who can't afford lodgings. And the numbers were in the tens of thousands who used to stay in them, and more so in winter. Why do you think that is? Why would there be more in winter?
0: Well, of course, because you can't really sleep rough in winter. Sleep rough in winter, you're probably going to die of exposure. So, that's a very stark indication of the kind of lives the people who frequented common lodging houses were living.
1: Yeah, and a lot of people who were tramps, and tramps basically means someone who's constantly in transit. So a lot of these people who were into tramping would find summer work in the countryside picking fruit.
0: Did you ever come across uh, any kind of etymological differentiation, Simon, between tramps and other kinds of transient?
1: Tramps, homeless, scroungers. Travellers? There's obviously so many, isn't there? Vegas?
0: With with travellers, I did uh, ethnology at university, and one of the social groups in Scotland from whom a lot of folklore was collected in the 50s and 60s were the Scottish travellers. And they were very different from tramps because they were an ethnic group, and they had their own language, their own culture, they still do, and they tended to live in tents and in later days in caravans Um, so they were very different the the travelers and the romani in england who are another ethnic group who live a similar kind of nomadic life they were very different from tramps i was always given to understand that tramps were homeless men specifically who would travel around the country do casual labor but only when they felt like
1: it i think it's important we For you and I, for this podcast, let's categorize them as people on the periphery of society.
0: Members of the underclass. Yeah.
1: Um, when I lived in Spain, there was a subgroup called perro flautas. Now, pero means dog, and flauta means flute. And these were people that rejected society. They didn't want to pay taxes. They didn't want to have a bank account and live in a society as we've created it. So they lived in encampments on the outsides of towns and cities. And they always had a dog, I guess for company. And they would play the flute for money in the town centre. It's called pereflauters.
0: That's very interesting. Is that a kind of post? Is that a kind of new age thing or post sixties? Or is very a-
1: much because they would often be wearing those types of clothes and have dreaded hair and facial tattoos. And so it's kind of a lifestyle choice. Then. It's it's a very much a lifestyle choice. So they're different to tramps, as in tramps were often consequences of bad fortune. Whereas para in Spain, they've chosen this lifestyle to reject society. It's important making that distinction. But for, for this essay, people staying in common lodging houses, they're people that have fallen on bad times. Uh, Orwell in down now in Paris and London goes on to explain there's nobody who chooses this. It's because it, it's a necessity for them. Well, he's written this essay because he wants to make up the public and particularly the middle-class and upper-class public, aware of the awful conditions in these common lodging houses. So again, he's showing his empathy for those on the periphery of society. He, he's showing his understanding of the tilted nature of social mechanics and how it runs against the common people, a theme we seem to discuss in every single podcast. Now, with regards to these common lodging houses, they would consist of a number of dormitories Now, in British English, a dormitory is a large room with a significant number of beds placed within it, sleeping in the same space.
0: Ever slept in a dormitory, Simon?
1: Yeah, I went to boarding school. Oh, of course. And I, I, yeah, from the age of 10 to 18. You're very well adjusted
0: for someone who went to boarding school. I sometimes (laughs)
1: forget. And I imagine the boarding school dormitory was somewhat different to the common lodging house dormitory. There would be a kitchen which Orwell said was almost always subterranean. And the kitchen would also serve as the communal space, the sitting room where people would gather and most probably drink various forms of alcohol.
0: Although he does mention that uh, alcohol was forbidden even in the even in the common common lodging houses and the, the ones run by the Salvation Army and the Roughton houses. Which it it was also activated. forbidden
1: in my boarding school, Lewis. I'm not
0: surprised.
1: Yet. Yet. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> some of my former masters may be listening, so I'll stop there.
0: I was just going to say, Simon, so he mentions the subterranean kitchens yeah. and the kitchens as a kind of gathering place. This really put me in mind. He, he, he also mentions that these... Common lodging houses haven't changed much since the 19th century. He, yeah. he, he writes this very interesting thing.
1: Well, if I may interrupt quickly, it's worth mentioning that the, the communal space is subterranean, most probably because out of sight, out of mind mm-hmm. for those people that are living in the neighbourhood.
0: When one first sees the murky troglodytic, troglodytic is one of my favorite words i
1: love that this passage yeah.
0: when one first sees the murky troglodytic cave of a common lodging house kitchen one takes it for a corner of the early 19th century which has somehow been missed by the reformers mm. that really struck me because i once read a very good book called the victorian underworld Have you ever come across that book? Highly recommend it. It's quite an old book. It was published in the 60s or the 70s by a historian whose name I forget. And I'm really sorry because he was a great historian. But this book, The Victorian Underworld, gives you a panoramic view of the underclass of Victorian society. And reading Orwell's essay, Orwell's writing in the 30s, just about within living memory today. And yet it seems so Victorian even then.
1: Yeah, like you say, nothing had changed. He, he he writes a great passage describing the living conditions, and he says the dormitories are horrid, horrible, fetid dens, packing with anything up to a hundred men, and furnished with beds a good deal inferior to those in a London Casual Ward Hospital for those who want to that. Normally, these beds are about five foot six inches long by two foot five inches wide. How tall are you, Lewis?
0: I'm taller than those beds, yeah, And I'm not particularly
1: one. tall. With a hard, convex mattress and a cylindrical pillow like a block of wood. Sometimes in the cheaper houses, not even a pillow. The bedclothes consist of two raw, umber-coloured sheets, supposed to be changed once a week, but actually in many cases left on for a month, under cotton counterpane. In winter, they may be blankets, but never enough. As often as not, the beds are verminous and the kitchens invariably swarm with cockroaches or black beetles. There are no baths, of course, and no room where any privacy is attainable. These are the normal and accepted conditions in all ordinary lodging houses. How does that sound to you, Lois? i us say Lois. Lois Lane. It doesn't
0: sound nice. Does that mean I'm Superman?
1: Well, that. If that... you're Lois Lane.
0: I haven't allowed you the kind of liberties that I'm sure Lois Lane allowed. Become
1: more Clark Kent. I've been called a Kent many times. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you do. I have. I, I have witnessed you uh, taking your clothes off in phone boxes. Before,
1: <laughs> yeah, it? yeah. But I served my time. So let's move, let's move on. <laughs> so we can both agree. We can both agree. Those living conditions sound absolutely even in 1932. And I guess the average height's shorter than now. That's still squalid, isn't it?
0: Well, Orwell, I think Orwell was probably your height or even a bit taller.
1: He was tall, wasn't he? He was
0: described as being a bit like Stan Laurel, very tall and thin. So I think he was taller than you, even. So he, he definitely wouldn't have fitted in one of those beds.
1: So the cost of these, to have a bed for one night, was between seven pence and one shilling, one pence a night. Now, for those unaware, and this is including Brits listening to this, old money mainly comprised of three units of currency, the penny, the shilling, and the pound, and these currencies were used in the UK until February 1971.
0: My parents can still convert from old money into modern money. Can you can understand that?
1: I have often heard my mum doing so. I don't think they still do it like I do now with yen into pounds. Yeah. But, but anyway, for those who are unaware, there were 12 pence in every shilling and 20 shillings in every pound. So a shilling today would be about 50 pence, which is about 73 American cents.
0: Don't worry too much about this, because with Brexit, we'll probably return to this very sensible <laughs> system quite soon.
1: Yeah. So seven pence or one to one shilling and one pence a night sounds cheap, but Orwell says that the common lodging house owner would make about £40 per night, which in today's money is about £650.
0: This is something that really struck me in this essay. I think Orwell's really hinting at a conflict of interest between the vital service that these lodging houses provide a space for the people on the bottom rung of society to stay to avoid dying of exposure especially in the winter there's a conflict between that service and the money-driven motives of the lodging house keepers which, uh, he, which
1: explains the presence of dormitories where you can pack people in like yes, sardines yes
0: and he later goes on to mention how the spaces between the beds is dictated not so much by health concerns but by the concerns of how many beds you can fit in a space
1: he mentions that some of these lodgings are okay such as Roughton House and the Salvation Army hostels what's the salvation army mean? well they still
0: exist today they are a christian group a christian organisation who help the homeless in britain do they exist in other countries they do yeah um they were founded in the 19th century during you know the height of people living in slums and the industrial revolution and they were a kind of radical christian organization who organized themselves like a military force hence the name salvation army and they even had ranks and things like yeah. that the man who founded the salvation army called himself general booth <laughs>
1: And Orwell later goes on to recommend that common lodging house and separate them to booths for each individual person. But obviously the general didn't listen. So despite the Salvation Army hostels being cleaner, they offset the cleanliness with ridiculously rigid discipline, which he describes as being in jail. So getting both liberty and a decent bed does not exist for this subclass in these common lodging houses.
0: I thought that the phrase liberty and a decent bed was very Orwellian, didn't yeah. you?
1: This separation of liberty and possession or ownership. If you don't possess, if you don't own, as in the capitalist system, you're not entitled to your liberty and the basic principles of liberty. Does this carry on today, Lewis?
0: Well, yes, I think it's exactly the same as it was back then. Orwell goes on to mention later how if you stay in a common lodging house, your peace is likely to be interrupted by groups of religious zealots coming in to preach at you and convert you. And Orwell mentions that if you stay at a, a nice hotel and you're drinking a cocktail in the bar, no one's going to come in and harangue you for indulging in the demon drink. And what's the difference? money.
1: Exactly, yeah, money. That's a really good point you bring up. Now, common lodging house. Sounds alright, doesn't it? Yeah, it doesn't doesn't sound like a five-star hotel, but it sounds alright. It's using words in a clever way to sugarcoat something that's in reality quite squalid and horrific. Can you think of anything else? Like, maybe more contemporary with this stuff.
0: Well, of course, these days we have the concept of the homeless hostel, which I, heard, I mentioned earlier, but I can't think of anything offhand.
1: Um When was the last time you flew on a plane, Lewis? About a year ago? For,
0: about as long ago as the pandemic started, yes.
1: Yeah, it's often because what was always economy class yes. is slowly being called World Traveller Class.
0: Yes, I had (laughs) not noticed that before, because when they call it World Traveller Class, you don't even remember that you're in the cheapest class. I'm a World Traveller,
1: but your your knees are tucked around your ears and you get cramp in every muscle in your body.
0: I've also noticed that um, in planes, they don't really even refer to, like, the best class isn't first class, it's business class. Which I suppose tells you something about the position of, of business in our society.
1: Well, and well, actually, very few business classes are called business class anymore. It's premium class or advanced class. I just can't wait for the day where they say, yeah, people with more money class. <laughs> Reminding you of who you are class.
0: That'll be the day when nothing matters anymore, surely.
1: Have you ever turned left upon entering an aeroplane?
0: Yes, I have. Um, It's a long story but basically my
1: um,
0: my dad worked for British Airways so as part of his well I suppose employees package he got two free flights a year and um, when I first went to Russia to visit the person who would become my spouse later on I got sat at the front of the plane in well, business class, I got my own pods to myself. I sat down in my well, seat and they said, Mr. Hurst, would you like orange juice or would you like champagne? What do you think I asked for? Simon?
1: I, I think you asked for two champagnes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I had champagne and then I had a cheeky glass of port just before we landed.
1: Good oh, man. How many hours is it to fly to Russia? It's just... Uh, Mos- was it Moscow?
0: It was Moscow. Uh, Domodedovo, I think. Um,
1: so it was just four hours... Okay, so I'm I'm sure you'd appreciate more if you were flying to Tokyo. Mm. Well I've never flown business class, I'm still saving up for it. <laughs> so if British Airways is listening, you'd like to sponsor this podcast, would we'd be quite happy to receive some business class <laughs> tickets.
0: What's left of British Airways? But right, so. mate. I don't know, you with all that free booze on a plane. Excuse me, <laughs> Mr. Perry, would you like champagne or would you like orange juice? Could you pour some Drambuie in that champagne? Yeah. It might make it palatable to me.
1: These common lodging houses are administered by the LCC, which is London County Council.
0: As was. Um, these days, that's the like Greater London Authority? Yeah, but, um,
1: yeah it'll be the GLA. And he's surprised that the LCC actually regularly does inspect these lodgings. And as you mentioned earlier, he talks about how the regulations make no sense, such as under a regulation of there being three feet between each bed, a form, an early form of social distancing, which is something we all know about these days. But what it means is the proprietors of the common lodging houses would raise the prices to compensate for the fewer beds that the LCC told them they could have due to some box ticking. So box ticking existed in 1932 as well. He also notes how so much attention was paid to the spaces between beds but not to the state of the beds themselves which showed you where the priorities lay with the LCC. It was with regards to fulfilling their hygienic criteria, but they cared very little for the humane aspect of these common lodging houses. Yes,
0: meanwhile the keepers of the lodging houses who were running a private business Mm. weren't caring about the hygiene, they were caring about fulfilling the writ of the LCC, keeping their license and making as much money as possible. Yeah.
1: Now, the next thing he goes on to discuss in the essay in great detail is how females were prohibited in general from these from these lodging houses. They had some female only but very few. This is also something he talks a lot about in down and out in Paris and London about the separation from females that tramps have and how that affects their psyche and self-esteem and basic biological pressures. Uh, desires. And he goes on to say, there seems no sense in the principle of licensing all houses for men only or women only, as though men and women were sodium and water and must be kept apart for fear of an explosion.
0: I have to say, I'm a bit at odds with Orwell here when it comes to things like the separation of men and women, the prohibiting of gambling and drinking. And the strict rules in lodging houses, because I think looking at it from the lodging house keeper's point of view, you've got a lot of men in a small space living hard lives. You've got to keep a certain amount of order, haven't you? And allowing drinking and gambling, first of all, that's going to, someone's going to get their head kicked in sooner or later. There's going to be fights. And allowing women in, I, I think time, people were, the reason they didn't allow women in was because they were afraid that basically the lodging houses would deteriorate into becoming brothels.
1: Which so, is what they were in the Victorian race.
0: Yes. So don't you think that
1: Orwell's being a bit kind of idealistic here? Well, you mentioned it yourself earlier, Lewis. Are you allowed to take a woman into a hotel? You are. <laughs> are you allowed to drink time, alcohol in a hotel?
0: At that time, you might have had to produce like a marriage license, or at least say (laughs) that you were Mr. and Mrs. Smith.
1: Are you allowed to drink alcohol in a hotel? Yes, you are. If you can pay for it. If you can pay for it. And are you allowed to play cards in a hotel?
0: If you can do it in private. And why
1: are you allowed to do these things? Because you're paying for the right to do so. These men are paying to be in a common lodging house. They're just people who don't have enough money to pay for a more standard hotel. Yet the principle is the same. Yet because they are the underclass, because they are tramps, they're being treated entirely differently. And the power relations between those who own property and those who pay for the temporary rental of the property is entirely distorted simply based on the class of the people paying for that service. That's what Orwell's getting at here. It's a a hypocrisy based on class and a view of the periphery of society.
0: You mentioned earlier, Simon, the Roughton Houses. Did you look into them at all? I looked into the Roughton Houses. They've got quite an interesting history. They were founded by a Victorian philanthropist, and there were Roughton Houses throughout Britain at one time. Do you know what most of them have become in recent years? most routing houses these days are either luxury flats or very expensive hotels that doesn't surprise me there is one routon house remaining in london with a substantially reduced population of homeless men tell you an interesting fact about Routon house
1: simon i can't
0: wait slightly related to orwell as well um which Famous world leader once stayed at a Roughton House working men's hostel.
1: Genghis Khan. Close? Kublai Khan.
0: Mm, further away.
1: Um, geographically?
0: I would say, I'll, I'll give you a clue. He really inspired Orwell's political position.
1: Francisco Franco, Joseph Stalin.
0: Yes. Joseph Stalin, when he was visiting London, long before he was a mover and shaker,
1: he was just a when he was Dili.
0: Yes, and nothing but a Georgian bank robber and a mid-level Bolshevik. When he went to a communist congress in London about 1905, he stayed in one of these Roughton House working men's hostels. That Roughton House is now, I think. A luxury hotel in the East End.
1: Looking at photos of old Yosef, I think he would have fit quite well into the bed.
0: He does, yes. (laughs) I think he would have fitted quite well into modern day Hoxton as well, that moustache.
1: (laughs) That's a very interesting fact. Thanks. Don't patronise me. (laughs) No, it (laughs) was interesting. There's a fine line between patronising and genuine (laughs) appraisal. Uh, and I'm treading it. (laughs) He goes on to talk about slumming parties that would march into the communal spaces and preach. So what does he mean by slumming parties?
0: Well, wealthy and middle-class do-gooders going in, this was something that was going on from the 19th century onwards, going into the slums and trying to convert the people who lived there to their particular brand of Christianity. Yeah.
1: And he, he goes on to say how this wouldn't happen in a hotel. Like the, these middle class evangelists would never dare go into a hotel because those people are civilized and they would turn them right away.
0: Or rather, the staff would turn them right away because they didn't want them to ruin their profits.
1: Exactly. And he says this kind of petty tyranny can in fact only be defended on the theory that a man poor enough to live in a common lodging house thereby forfeits some of his rights as a citizen and that is and um, continues to be the view of the middle and upper class that somebody who is down and out who's bad down on their luck has to therefore forfeit some of their rights as a member of society
0: yes and even in the and they're true- wrong
1: Clearly, wrong about that.
0: Even into the modern day, the more money you have, the easier it is to exercise your rights in society.
1: So, at the end of the essay, and it's quite a short essay, isn't it? One of his short ones, he concludes by saying, It is absurd that they should be compelled to choose, as they are at present, between an easy going pigsty and a hygienic prison. And there you go. So, to conclude and just to ch- talk about these themes, who were these people sleeping in these lodgings?
0: Well, as we said at the beginning, it was a mixed population. It was men tramping around the country looking for work, perhaps miners who had lost their jobs in the coal fields, going down south to try and make a bit of money to send back to their families. It was gentlemen of the road, as they were romanticised at that time, tramps who did a bit of seasonal labour here and there, but generally lived a life outside of society and, and paying taxes and being part of a stationary community. And it was those who had fallen to the lowest depths of society and who had nowhere else to stay. It goes to even
1: though sailors, soldiers, people who had been thrown out of home prostitutes yeah is a, a very large proportion of society now a theme that I've always found really interesting when mm-hmm. talking about the if we may call it so underclass is that of humiliation making people accept responsibility for their fate nobody chooses to be poor it's a consequence of your birth or a consequence of your fate no one ever chooses to be poor so by making people accept responsibility, for their poverty, I've always found ludicrous and damn right cruel. And we're doing it now through the lack lack of welfare, lack of, lack of welfare handouts as a result of austerity. And the, the current demonization of people that need welfare. And the people that demonize people that need welfare are those that were born into a middle class family, have never known what it means to be trapped in this endless continuous circle of of bad fortune. Because bad fortune breeds bad fortune. People of the middle and upper class often have bad fortune, but they have enough credit economically and culturally to be able to recover from that bad fortune. Whereas people born into the lower class or poverty don't have any credit from which to recover from bad fortune. So it breeds more bad fortune. So I've always been very, very resistant to this idea of humiliation with regards to those who are, let's say, down and out. And if the poor are proud, dignified, stoical, they may show solidarity, even defiance, in facing the condition of being poor. And what does that do? It it dilutes the control of the ruling classes. So in individualizing and humiliating people who are in bad situations, you can maintain that control, that status quo between the the haves and the have nots.
0: I agree with you, but don't you think these days, Simon, these places for those on the bottom rung of of society, don't you think these places are much more hidden? Because in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, we had the routen houses, they were in, they were very big, prominent buildings. The philanthropists put forward money for them to be built. And as we've said, since then, many of them have become luxury hotels in gentrified areas. Do you think that these kinds of hostels, for those who have nowhere else to go, are much more hidden these days? And so the people in them are hidden
1: too. Yes, but these places have often not been hidden throughout history on purpose. Are you aware of the term hetero No. You know one of my go-to men, Michel Foucault, he, <laughs> he came up with the concept of a hetero-utopia, which is a world within a world. It's mirroring. And yet upsetting what is outside. So they play a role in making the society, they mirror, a utopia. Which means those who are living in the attempted utopia need to see the mirror to understand that what they are doing is creating a better society. Now these type of places are common lodging, houses, prisons,
0: public (laughs) schools,
1: brothels, Mental institutions, public skills. <laughs> well, you could maybe tick each of each and one of those for that. But, but.
0: You get similar experiences in each one.
1: <laughs> so the common lodging houses are the antithesis of respectable bourgeois domesticity. On the other side are freedoms and liberties that must be taken away in the dystopian mirror image in order for the utopia to. be a reality to thrive to exist hence these kinds of places are rarely hidden for what use is a hidden mirror did that answer your question
0: more or less please
1: don't ask me to say it again (laughs) (laughs) sorry could you repeat that very good very good
0: so simon we started our discussion by mentioning how these common lodging houses were a kind of combination of what we now think of as a youth hostel a homeless hostel And a kind of working man's barracks. You're a lot more well-travelled than I am. You've stayed in a lot of different types of accommodation. Have you ever come across this kind of thing in the wide world?
1: Well a lot of my travelling done in my younger days was on an extremely low budget and I was often spending days, even weeks, with literally no money to my name. But I always did my travelling in summer months and I would often find a place to sleep outside. Hence In this essay, he describes how numbers go down in the summer. I'd sleep in parks and whatnot. But I've stayed in YMCA, where you have to work for your keep. So I would stay there for two nights, and in return, I had to help in the kitchen, or scrub the floors. I've stayed in a lot of youth hostels, in which there would be 20 of us in a bunk room, in bunk beds, paying very minimal rates. But... You know, I can't compare that to the conditions that Orwell is describing here. How about you, ever?
0: As I say, you're a lot more well-travelled than I have, but once when I went on a school trip down to London, the I think I can mention this now because it was a long time ago. The,
1: what, did, what did the teacher do?
0: The teachers tried to save money by uh, getting his beds in a hostel that I think they thought was a youth hostel it turned out to be much more like a common lodging house. And um, I was staying, I was
1: the only... So your Scottish teacher was trying to save money?
0: Yes, can you believe it? I it's just completely cannot, no, I, mean, I don't believe out that. Out of character. I mean, don't believe that. Mate, you're going to get cancelled now.
1: Um, In Scotland? <laughs> I suppose this podcast is free, so they might listen to us there.
0: That was the end of the Aurelian podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not bitter. Um, but no, my my teacher tried to save a bit of money by getting us to stay in this hostel, which I think she thought was a youth hostel, but it turned out to be much more like a common lodging house. And um, the whole experience was a lot more grotty than most of us expected it to be. Oh, okay. And uh, there were some rather interesting graffiti on the wall by my bed, that's all I can say. So that's it. We have discussed common lodging houses to date the earliest George Orwell essay, or rather Eric Blair essay in this case we've ever discussed. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm glad he didn't call himself X. Yes. That's a bit dull, isn't it? It reminded me very much of the Are you familiar with X rated. Are you familiar with the um Russian writers and their various pseudonyms, the pre-Soviet writers,
1: you know... I I just know every time I read a pre-Soviet Russian novel, each character has about 28 Mm. different ways of being addressed, and had to constantly refer to the glossary to know who the hell they were talking to.
0: Trust me, uh, I married into a Russian family, and it's much the same in real life as well. What's your
1: wife called today, and what's she going to be called tomorrow.
0: Yes, exactly. Um... But the the pre-Soviet writers, like, you know Maxim Gorky? Mm -hmm. That wasn't his real name. It was his pseudonym. Gorky means bitter. And there were various other... Maxim
1: very. He was very bitter.
0: Yes, exactly. Um, I love Gorky, but I never knew that. um, So these pre-Soviet writers who were kind of communist sympathizers, they chose sort of heart-rending pseudonyms like bitter and
1: my my schools and my universities by maxim gorky how relevant is that to the essays of george orwell very relevant very similar memoirs describing the underclass
0: yet uh, gorky was of the underclass and george, george orwell just tried to pass as one of the underclass um, it, they, they kind of went in different directions as well G- gorky was born in the underclass and ended up as part of the cream of Soviet society, Orwell kind of went in the other direction, didn't he? Yeah. Um, although he was still well off enough to die in a private hospital.
1: Um, Washing dishes in Paris. Please, listeners, read that book, Down and Out in Paris and London. If it has the same impact on you as it did upon me, it really will change your your view of society and how you approach life. I know that sounds very grandiose, but it really did have an impact on me, that book.
0: Next week, we will be reading Orwell's essay, As I Please, 45. Odd title, but if you're using the everyman-selected essays to read along, then you'll know what we mean. As I Please, 45.
1: Expect imperialism. This week, we have mostly been talking about...
0: Common Lodging Houses.
1: Fast show for those who didn't get that. Right, do your silly pun. All right, everyone.
0: All right. Uh, Well, thanks for listening. My name is Lewis. Simon. Orwell the Thames one.